Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Uh, Coming up later in the podcast, we talk broadcast with an executive from Essence talking about ITV's results and trading spats between uh, broadcasters. But first up and sat opposite me is Peter Scott, one of the founders of advertising agency WCRS and the former chief exec of Aegis and chairman of Engine Group, who is now the chief exec of the next generation advertising group, Be Heard. Now, thanks very much for joining me, Peter. I guess people listening will know you from your days at WCRS and Engine, amongst others. Perhaps maybe they're less familiar with Be Heard. First up, can you just give listeners a brief overview of Be Heard in terms of the business proposition, number of employees, revenues and clients? Okay, before I do that, I'm going to tell you that you're sitting in the very offices that WCRS sat, started in oh, really? 30-something years ago. Oh, so go. we should do a blue plaque. Um, what are we doing and why? So uh, we started on this journey about two and a half, three years ago, and I looked at the marketplace and saw that the middle tier. So you've got the big holding companies, you've got the small independents, but that middle tier of pure play digital specialists are all being bought or all being hoovered up by the large boys. And so you had a big gap in that marketplace. You had narrow specialists and you had the big holding companies. And my view was that the narrow specialists would get to a point where there was a point of inflection. They needed to do something and needed change, but they didn't necessarily want to go to the large holding companies. So today, Be Heard is an AIM-listed company We've made five acquisitions. We're about 330 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we cover UX design and build. We cover digital media planning and buying. We cover digital content and social. We cover um, uh, uh, integrated creative. And we cover uh, analytics and insight. So we're trying to plot, monitor, measure, and plan the customer journey from beginning to end for on behalf of clients and to connect different parts of that journey together in a more meaningful and a more uh, agile way. So, and how long have you been in existence? And all the, 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 the businesses uh, are in separate offices at the moment, but the plan is to have them all in one office, is it? So the businesses are dotted around uh, Soho, but then we've got quite a lot of people up in Uppingham. In the building that we're sitting in, we've got three companies plus the group, but there are other people who perch in this, in this space as well. So the plan is that we'll move everybody into one building in the first half of next year. And that, I think, will be helpful from an efficiency point of view and from a client perspective. And your role has changed this year. You were chairman, now you're chief exec. What's the, what's the thinking behind that then? So the thinking behind that was that I was executive chairman and we didn't have a chief executive. Right. So as we grew, we thought it would be sensible to bring in an independent, non-executive chairman. And therefore, I moved across to the chief executive role, recognizing too that we were moving out of the first phase of M&A activity into the second phase, which was running and developing the businesses that we had. Uh, okay, so uh, on this podcast, we've frequently uh, talked about the perils of the big advertising groups, the likes of Publicis, WPP, Havas. Um, to a lesser or a greater extent, they're all suffering from a slowdown in growth, partly down to clients spending less, partly down to sluggish economic growth, and partly down to the challenge from Facebook and Google. Um, a blunt question, is, is Be, Be Heard benef- benefiting from the woes of the big advertising net- networks? Why should a client come to Be Heard and, and, and perhaps not an, an Omnicom? Well, uh, there will be clients who are with Omnicom who will stay with Omnicom. There will be clients who are with WPP and and will stay with WPP. We have a different proposition. We have a connected 
proposition which allows us to link different skills in a seamless way, get higher up the food chain and start thinking about problems rather than responding to briefs. So we're beginning to bring in some of the consulting skills which are here. Uh, there are many different brands in this marketplace. The large holding groups, I think, have had their day. They've been on land grabs. They've had competing brands. I can't see any advantage to a client in having competing uh, networks uh, under the same ownership. There may be a story to investors, but that story is beginning, beginning to run out of road now because, as you said, they are finding growth very difficult. They're finding margins under pressure, and part of the reasons they're finding margins under pressure is that the sort of margins that were being made on digital media planning and buying through the trading desks are simply not going to be a part of the future because the ANA report of uh, nearly two years ago blew the cover off it and clients have woken up and things are changing. So some services are going in-house. But the days when clients wanted to appoint a large group uh, around the world with 120 different offices on big fat retainers, I'm afraid they've come to an end. And it is the more agile groups that are beginning to seize and take that opportunity. And you only have to look at what uh, Martin Sorrell has done mm. since leaving WPP only weeks ago. He's effectively said that model isn't fit for purpose going forward. There's a new model, and that's what I'm going to build. That's the space that we're in. That said, um, the big, uh, they've still got scale, haven't they? They've got heritage, the, the, the caliber of people still working in the networks. Uh, I mean, do you not, you, but you think that they've had their day, though? Do you well, I think, they, I think they've had their, I think, I think that their, their, their rates of growth are going to be under pressure. Mm. Let me give you an analogy. The analogy is General Motors to Tesla. So General Motors made 9.7 million cars last year. Tesla made 77,000. The market cap of Tesla last year reached the same market cap as General Motors. Why? Because people were backing technology rather than automotive manufacture. And I think that what you've got now is a rapidly changing marketplace with a new generation of clients who don't wake up and think, what's this new stuff happening in social and digital? They are natives of that world. And they're not looking to the old legacy businesses and the old legacy relationships as the foundation of going forward. They're looking for a completely different, more agile, more flexible response. So, and uh, Behead, you're pitching as a group, are you? And you mentioned consultancies there, but are, are you, is there examples where you're winning business off the, businesses off the, the big networks then? Well, I, we, we, we compete against them. I mean, we're not about to, to walk into um, sure. one of the top global advertisers and win everything on a global basis. But we are working with some tier one clients. We are competing against the large groups. We're competing against mid-sized groups. From time to time, we even find ourselves coming up against consultancies. And we're getting more than our fair share of wins on that basis. Why? Because I think we have created a an environment where people want to work together. They focus on the client's problems. We want to think about the problem and not simply the brief. Mm. We want to find ways of collaborating, which allows us to be more efficient, more agile, more responsive to the pressures on clients. And the pressures on clients today are massive. Mm. Okay. Now, you alluded to Martin Sorrell there. I'm going to pick up on the, a piece I saw in the Financial Times before I came, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's from the Beheard Annual Report in 2015, which says... Uh, Expertise in analyzing data and deriving marketing insights has become a critical determinant of business success. Our vision is to create an agile and interconnected marketing group specializing in digital, digital solutions designed to help clients achieve better results, which, as you alluded to, sounds uh, as if it could come from the S4 Capital Annual Report. So do you feel as though Martin Sorrell's sort of pinched your idea then? Well, I don't think Martin's pinched our idea. I'm sure Martin has you know, many, many uh, very good ideas which he, he propagates on his own. I think you know, we smiled when Martin 
effectively came into the space that we've we've gone into. Uh, we're not the only people out there. You've got uh, David Jones with his group, which is operating in, in not dissimilar space. Martin will build, I'm sure, a fit-for-purpose forward-looking group, and we will do the same. Will we compete for the same businesses? Probably not, because he's got much deeper pockets than we have. So the scale of his ambition is different to the scale of our ambition. He's immediately started with something international. We're building a UK presence to begin with. Is there room for us both? More than, more than enough. Is, is, presumably he's someone you know. You must have been kept, kept a close eye on what happened at WPP. Do you think he was, he was ill-treated? Is, is your reading of it or, or not? Or? I don't think that it's really for me to, to pass judgment on it. I think it was just a sad end of a, a glittering career. But he is someone you do. You know, do, you, do you know him personally? Or? I see Martin very occasionally. Right, okay. So, I mean, one, if one was to suggest that there could be some sort of combination or uh, joining together of S4 Capital and BHERD, that would be uh, a far-fetched, very far-fetched suggest something along those lines, I guess. That would be your suggestion, not mine, and I don't think it would be Martin's either. Right, okay. So just to be, uh, just to be clear on the, the BHERD proposition, so you would never entertain looking at buying a traditional creative agency or a traditional uh, you know, legacy media agency. That, that's not your game then? Well, we don't want to look back because we want to look forwards. We've got to look at what is fit for purpose going forward. So if you look at TV buying, for example, addressable mm. TV, all the lessons of programmatic are now being applicable to mm. broadcast. So broadcast itself is changing. It's not the old way of doing stuff. It's the new way. If that's relevant to our, to our capabilities and to the needs of our clients, we'll embrace that skill. But we're not going to go backwards into the old way of doing things because it's not relevant to the future. Okay, so I think last week you reported, uh, reported your trading update to the city. Revenues were up in the first half, half of the year, year on year, and you had some pointed out some big wins, such as Aviva and GSK. Uh, but you did warn of cost reductions in the second half of the year, citing client spend volatility. Um, can you just tell us how, how these uh, cost reductions are going to manifest themselves? Well, it's a balancing act always between maintaining the capacity that you need to service existing clients, to have the bandwidth to present and, and to win for new business, to pitch and win for new business. I said right at the beginning of the year that some clients were slow out of the blocks. And that, if you look at the backdrop in terms of the economic environment, if you look at the political uh, environment in which we're in, clients are cautious at the moment. So we have to respond and react to the way that they're thinking and behaving and to their spend patterns. And we're just rebalancing with a new CFO on side to make sure that it, we, we, we've got the ratios right going forward into two of the second half and going into next year. So there's not going to be uh, job cuts? You're not cutting by that way? No, 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 no. Okay. And you also gave a, an interview in the Evening Standard, which you, you said, we're too small and not generating uh, enough volume. The stock is not active on a daily basis, and we are not generating uh, enough interest among market makers and analysts. That's still the case then? And if it is, how, I mean, how do you resolve that issue then? Well, I think you've got the problems of um, the market overall. I think you've got the problems of MIFID two. You've got the problems of AIM, and you've got the problems of being a microcap. And the answer is you've just got to get on and get on, to stick, stick true to your, uh, your goals and your ambitions, get on with your knitting and start delivering results that gets you noticed. Uh, okay. And it's also been pointed out that the share price has dropped considerably since launch. Someone who knows far more about these things than me suggested that BHERD could be a prime acquisition target. Would that be, would that be um, speculation? or? Well, I think the point to remember is that we've got 30% of the shares inside and that the, the people who earn the revenue, earn thir- who generate the revenue, earn 30% of the, uh, of the company. So 
I can't speculate as to whether anybody is going to ever knock on the door. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But they would need to carry an awful lot of people internally with them if they did. Right, but you've not had anyone knocking on the door this We're a public year. company and therefore you know my yeah. constraints. But Okay, right. Okay, okay. that, that, um, that clears up. But just, I mean, going forward, you've made a series of acquisitions in a short space of time. So I guess you're not going to be that acquisitive going forward. We're not going to see a number of acquisitions next year. Then. Well, what we said about this year was that we needed to get our arms around what we had, bring the companies closer together, import, export, um, uh, Best, best ways of working and, and uh, rationalized systems and other things. And that process is going on. We'll move everybody into one building. With the share price as it is, we can't make acquisitions and when, as and when the share price recovers uh, and we get some debt capacity, then that, that uh, possibility will come back for us. Okay. Um, so it's obviously fantastic that you're joining us. Uh, it'd be great to get your take. Obviously, you're a, uh, widely known as an advertising luminary heralded for your time at, well, WCRS, Aegis and Engine, amongst others. Um, what's the biggest difference in advertising today to what it was? Um, I'm trying to work out when you were in your pump, maybe. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe the late 70s and the 80s. Well, I think the 80s, I mean, people, people look at Mad Men and they go, was it like that? And you go, no, it was better. Uh, the 80s were a wonderful time. We had Thatcher, we had capitalism, we had markets booming. And we worked our backsides off, but we had a lot of fun doing it. Today, you don't get as much fun out of life, partly because of uh, HR pressures, partly because of procurement, partly because there are simply different ways that you have to think and act and behave in business today. Do we still generally enjoy what we do? Yes, we do. Do we enjoy winning? Yes, we do. Do we enjoy doing great work? Yes, we do. Do we cry if we don't win business? Yes, we do. It's an emotional business. It's one where we rent our brains. It's one where you get in early and you work late simply because it motivates and enthuses you. And long may that continue. Is, that, is it not, you say, is it not as enjoyable now because you're not getting the, the characters are going into the industry anymore? Is it, is it a bit sort of monolithic in that term? I, I think that if you look at the industry in the 80s and you look at the characters who were around in the Mm. 80s and you look at the work that was appearing in the 80s it was that era we are in many ways a mirror of what's happening in society in terms of the work that we produce and the way in which we build our businesses but you didn't have procurement pressures in those days Mm. you simply did a deal with the seats with the ceo Mm. so it's a different world it's a different uh, environment we adapt and we change and we've hope to thrive and prosper and smile from time to time. And the issues of today, such as women not getting to the top jobs in advertising, uh, the advertising industry being too London-centric, there's also lots of, well, um, suggestive allegations of sexual harassment. Those have always been issues that the industry has faced, has it? Well, I, I, I can't comment on the mm. sexual harassment side. Um, in, in the context of being too London-centric or women not getting opportunities, my view on life is that you promote the best. Mm. And if women are the best, and it's irrelevant. You simply take the best people. And if you're ambitious in this industry, the great thing about it is that it is a meritocracy. Nobody cares where you went to school. Nobody cares mm. where you were brought up. Nobody cares what color you are, what race, what religion. Mm. If you're talented and you've got energy and you've got vision and you've got enthusiasm, then you're embraced and you're promoted. Mm. And, you're, and, and I, I, I think that's something to applaud inside this industry. Mm. Just going back to the... Um, I did pick up a story in The Independent from 1992 
which is about 26 years ago, um, which I'm sure you'll remember, was when you <laughs> left Aegis. And there's a story about how the company was putting up for sale two of its luxury corporate jets following, the, <laughs> following your resignation. And I just thought that, um, I mean, that sounds quite amazing, but I guess that, that would be frowned upon today. You can't imagine a, a big holding company having two private jets. I guess it was justified because you were winning lots of business and it was a, a, a more economic way of, or well, a quicker way of getting around the world, was it winning business? Well, it, I think in 1972, Sorry, 1992, uh, Aegis made 76 or 80 million pounds. We had offices all over the place, and we were jumping around Europe, and it was an efficient way of doing it. Now, you, if you were doing it at all, you'd do it on net jets, but my journey to Soho does not require a jet, so we're fine. Right, okay. But you could understand that that sort of, I mean, that sort of behaviour, that wouldn't be, uh, that would be frowned upon today, wouldn't it? I would have thought, or not? In, in, in certainly, sort of certainly, certainly with a name-listed company of... Um, 12 million market cap, I think it would be, yeah. Okay. And just um, a few weeks ago, we had the, the business editor of the Sunday Times on this podcast, who's written a book on uh, the retail entrepreneur, Philip Green. Yes. And he made some interesting compar- comparisons between Martin Sorrell and, and Philip Green, saying, uh, and I guess, uh, arguably, you could bracket yourself in this, products of the 1980s. Um, and that those, I mean, well, maybe not you as such, but I mean, they achieved... Um, notoriety or fame by building big businesses through acquisitions and I guess uh, to their detriment they both faced accusations of bullying too. Do you think that the age of those type leaders has gone now and they're a product of their years? I think that the world moves on and new leaders emerge with different values and I don't think it's fair to look back at the value systems that were there in the 1980s or the 1990s through the lens of 2018 and to say it was all wrong. Uh, Was Thatcher wrong? No, Thatcher created massive change in this country. Um, Now people can look back and say that it was unfair, it was unruly. Look at what we had before. We had an economy that was crashing. So uh, people people rise up, they become leaders, they build businesses in different eras and there will be different characteristics. Okay, and obviously your early 70s now, um, which, I mean, Donald Trump's similar age I guess uh, John Humphreys I mean how long do you have you set yourself a term on, on when you, you plan to retire well I was delighted when Martin um, came back into the industry after his six week um, sojourn because that allowed me to say again that I'm two or three years younger than Martin uh, when I, we started on this I said it was probably a five to seven year journey we're a couple of years in and I remain of that view okay and then five years down the road what, what, how will be head look then do you think Well, I always said that the ambition was to build it up to a position where it was generating about 100 million of revenues. Why 100 and why not 90 or 120? The answer is that a couple of zeros are better than one um, and certainly more sensible than three. So from that perspective, I think that we have a good business. uh, We have a good model. We have a good trajectory. And I hope that we will be seen to be a new generation player working with tier one, tier two clients, making a difference, uh, reflecting changes in consumer and and the way in which companies uh, interact with their customers, and that will be very relevant uh, in five years' time. And still independent. And still independent. Okay, and next up we have uh, Sam Maloney, head of video at Essence, talking about all the big broadcast news of the week. Hey, so um, thanks for joining me, Sam. So it's been a busy week in uh, in broadcast. Uh, so let's kick off talking about the spat between Virgin Media and UK TV. This obviously happened 
over last weekend and saw millions of TV, TV viewers being unable to watch UK TV channels, including Dave and Gold, after Virgin Media removed the channels from set-top boxes. So this is all an argument which is over fees then? Uh, it, is, it, seems, it seems that is the main cause of the, of the spat. So uh, roughly up to 10 channels have been removed from the Virgin EPG uh, as a result of this breakdown in contract negotiations. There's obviously two sides to, to each story. Virgin have cited that, you know, that UK TV, which is a joint venture between BBC Studios and, and Discovery, mm. that they're not, they're not quite able to provide the significant on-demand programming that their customers yeah. want. Um, so UKT basically countered that by saying that all that Virgin are trying to do is employ a huge reduction in the fees paid for their channels. Yeah. So they're, they're going back and forward on that. Okay. So, I mean, how is it, how is it going to resolve itself? Because I think there was um, a further story uh, today saying that they were actually going to, um, they could actually be look at auctioning off the, uh, the channels. So it's sort of moved on, hasn't it? Absolutely. I think now you can see a lot in trade press that a lot of Virgin customers that are huge, say, cult fans of those UK TV channels are basically now saying, well, how do I cancel my subscription? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's very serious. People are now more more want to watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. And I think once you take that away from people, then it's going to cause problems. Um, with regards to a reconciliation, I think there's a few more hurdles to jump over. Uh, I think it could be quite a scare tactic by saying look, that they're just going to be auctioned off. Um, and if enough people say, look, we are going to cancel our subscriptions, then that impacts Virgin's bottom line and the amount of subscription money that they're getting, it may cause Ofcom to get involved and say, look, we've got a hell of a lot of people here that are unhappy. We need to find some middle ground. It may be that there is uh, an increase in the fees being paid to UK TV. Um, and then they look to, you know, outweigh uh, their on demand. Of Virgin are happy with what they're offering, so I think it has to be it's something it has to give on both sides for them to be able to move forward before it becomes uh, the position becomes untenable. Okay, I think I noticed. I don't think Ofcom was saying an awful lot, but but these trading spots uh, are quite common, are they? But I guess it's uncommon uh, for a company to actually you know to remove channels. That that, that that's quite an uncommon step, then, really, an unusual step to take. It is. That's, that's gone a little bit further than it's ever gone before, really. I think we could look back to, I think, Jan 2017. Yeah. Sky and Discovery Channel had, yeah. well, quite harsh words, actually, in trade press. It was basically a breakdown in, in negotiated terms to try and keep Discovery's free-to-air and pay-TV channels available yeah. to Sky and now TV customers. So, again, it then comes back to, you know, the money that's being transferred between two parties. So, those relationships were, were very frayed uh, for quite some time. It was partly to do with a recent acquisition of Sky by Fox, which obviously includes some of Discovery Channel's biggest rivals. Um, so mm. that was also something that got thrown into the mix. I think you'll you'll find these spats come up more often than not as broadcasters and content providers yeah. understand how valuable that the consumer is and this on-demand side of, uh, yeah. of viewing. It's not just linear TV. Yeah. It's people watching linear TV programming, but on catch-up devices as and when they want to. So I think you might see this happen more while people are, are jostling for position to make sure that they're, they're getting as much as they can of subscription revenue and they're getting getting impacts and their delivery impacts. Okay, I mean, there was another report about a spat between Virgin Media and ITV. That I, I, I guess the common thread here is Virgin Media. I don't, I don't know if they're a particularly tough negotiator. Uh, but aside from that, we've obviously had uh, ITV's 
half-year results uh, this week. I noticed, um, I think there was 26 million tuned in to watch England lose in the semi-final, and Love Island regularly pulls in over 3 million uh, viewers. Yeah. So it shows that um, ITV can still put bums on its seats. I mean, what were your big takeaways from the results? The fact that advertising revenue is up to overall revenue is up, is up 80%, so it's a very good half-year results for those guys. I think um, Carolyn McCall's made a point where she looks at trying to optimise towards consumers direct and try mm. and build that. I know that she's, she's granted $100 million that she thinks she can actually drive to go to consumers direct because of the success of subscription channels such as Netflix, Amazon Fire, because, as I said earlier, content is so important now. The, mm. the viewer is willing to pay £5, £8 a month to be able to access the content they want. And if you look at ITV basically as a as a business, mm. their studios are driving a hell of a lot of revenue for those guys. If you just look at the, the amount of money they paid for Talbot, it was around eight hundred million for the voice. That's now been sold to various countries around the world. So hugely profitable for ITV. So it's leveraging the content that they're available to buy, produce themselves, and then basically sell those rights around the world and also on top of that go direct to the consumer and get those the consumers to pay for exactly what sort of content they want. And I think it's a it's a very smart move from her, very smart, because I think you're looking at most channels, uh, providers are losing that younger audience. Yeah. Um, so it's a case of, okay, let's join up and maybe have a streaming service with, with BBC or, or with all four, as, as has been mentioned. And it's trying to pull our resources together as the broadcasters to say, look, we can actually, we're better off against the duopoly by by pulling our resources to keep those viewers than we are battling against each other. I think you've seen that with Project Firefly. You've seen ITV and all four get together and say, look, basically broadcast a VOD, it drives sales, it drives brand affinity, all of these different metrics. And I think that, that and then this statement yesterday, um, is the first that we're seeing where the broadcasters are going to be more willing to work with each other for, for the benefit of all of them. Okay, so I mean, in short, ITV still obviously heavily ad dependent, but as you say, it's trying to move away from being ad dependent. Obviously, there's moves by the government to perhaps ban junk food TV advertising before 9 pm, which would have a, a big impact on ITV. And you mentioned the, the streaming service sort of clubbing together with rivals, which sounds a good idea, but shouldn't ITV have been doing this, you know, many moons ago? It seems a bit late in a way, does it? Or, or maybe it takes time to get these things together, I guess. I agree it should have happened a while ago but I think broadcasters if you look back a few years that they've got the heritage they've got that premium professionally made content it's the only real place to get that that type of content and it's a case of I don't know if they had the capabilities in house to be able to, to mm. offer an online offering that was up to speed as, as your Netflix or your, your Amazon Prime so I think it's a case of the last few years what we've seen is the broadcasters trying to align themselves with various tech companies to try and bring their offerings forward because they were well aware they were falling behind. Um, and I think now you're starting to see that and they're thinking, we're not only going to align ourselves with tech companies to improve our, our video on demand offerings, but we're actually going to work together. Um, and again, because Google and Facebook, you know, the mm. amount of the budget that's being spent in those two, it makes sense for the broadcaster to say, okay, let's push our own remit. But whilst we're doing that, I think we are a stronger proposition if we look if we work together. Okay, fantastic. And, and finally, you mentioned Carolyn McCall. Uh, I know it, she's not been in the job too long, but she's uh, largely seen as, as doing a, a good job today. Is that right? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think Crozier, uh, the, 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 the previous CEO, had 
a remit where he had to try and get that share price up. He had to drive that share price. So it wasn't very, it wasn't very um, relationship based. Okay. Look at his relationships with a lot of the, with with a lot of the uh, the agencies in the, in the media industry. I say there wasn't relationship there. Whereas Karen McCall seems to be focused on that and trying to drive those relationships. It's much more visible um, in trade press and is often talking about the consumer and them having a more of a a better experience the consumer journey whilst consuming video including video tv needs to improve and i think that's a focus mm. um and i think that that's only that can only be a good thing for, for rtv specifically right okay fantastic all right thanks very much sam take care